Hello and welcome to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. I'm Kelly McKercher. I'm a designer, a writer, and I use them, they pronouns. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which I'm recording this podcast, the Wongal and Gadigal people of the Ori Nation, as well as all nations across Australia. This series aims to stretch our view of human-centered design through talking with practitioners who are working beyond the double diamond, who are pushing practice. On today's podcast, we discuss what it means to be a systems-conscious designer, where we can turn for more expansive language about the worlds we want, and we hear about designing at the Australian Tax Office, or the ATO. It's a rich and wide-ranging conversation. We are joined by Luke Craven and Elise Mortelli. Elise is a freelance service designer working on accelerating our transition to a circular economy. Luke is a Canberra-based systems consultant and researcher. Welcome, Luke and Elise, to the show. Thanks, Kellyanne. I'm coming to you today from the land of the Ngunnawal people, and my pronouns are he, him. Fantastic, and Elise. Hi, I'm coming to you from the Wurrung and Boonwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and my pronouns are she and her. I wonder if you could kick off by telling us a bit about your practice working at the intersection of design and of systems. Thanks, Kellyanne, and thanks so much for having me today. So I've always been really passionate about how we take a systemic perspective on the problems that orient us all, um, whether those are big societal problems or big economic problems or ones that we're very familiar with in our lives today, like climate change or pandemics and COVID-19. I came to design thinking through my work and my practice in systems. And as an academic, had been very interested in how we take a rigorous, methodical approach to understanding what it means for people to sit in the middle of a complex system and experience it but experience it very differently from those around them and how we could pull that together into a story that's coherent and impactful for policymakers. Then I landed in the world of of human-centered design and was given the opportunity to experiment with what it meant to bring these different practices together. And a lot of the designers that I've been working with were really interested in pushing their practice, thinking about how they made their systems practice, or sorry, their design practice more systems-led or systems conscious, how they elevated some of the work of product design or service design to that whole of systems level. And Elise and I came together uh, in our work at the Australian Tax Office, which is the administrator of Australian's ta- Australia's tax and superannuation system. And that gave us a, an interesting opportunity to play with what this meant to bring the different, to the, the different practices together. So I'm really fascinated by, you know, what does it mean to make design more systems conscious? I'm also really fascinated by the question that works in the inverse. So what does it mean to take a more design-led approach to our systems work? Um, And what can design thinking teach systems practitioners and complexity practitioners about how to take something that often feels really fluffy and amorphous and make it actionable? Um, and, and make it impactful for the lives of people that we're looking to improve. Mm. So maybe, Elise, if you could share with us an example in one of those directions, either something that systems have to teach designers or that designers have to teach systems. Yeah, great question. I was reflecting on this question beforehand, and one thing that comes to mind is the pace 
um, comparing the pace of such as a service design project with that of a systems mapping type project. Um, and I think the beauty of a systems mapping type project is that it's much slower, like to have to design and really research and immerse yourself in all of the, the research to create a systems map. Something we could learn from perhaps systems thinking is to lean into that time to really sit with the research and synthesis and understand what's going on, the interconnections. Um, yeah, to really identify kind of consciously where you want to design compared to letting perhaps the pace kind of run that process for you. Yeah. Mm. And what's the place of in between, right? We've got things that need to happen today, yesterday, tomorrow. Uh, we've got things that perhaps there's more authority and space to take time on. Um, I'm wondering, Luke, if, if you can think of some examples where you're moving both fast and slow at the same time. Um, I would echo Elise. I think one of the exciting things about systems practice is that it challenges us to think in a different way about our environments and the context in which we find ourselves. I think whether you're doing a systems map per se or you're investing time in the slow production of understanding those relationships and connections in a particular field of work or whether you're just taking a systems perspective on a problem and you're thinking about ambiguity differently or you're thinking about the dynamism of the context you find yourself in a little bit differently and putting more emphasis in being able to sit with and be comfortable with that complexity, both of those things count as a kind of systems conscious design practice. And so I think there is this, as you put it, like there's a fluidity between the gung-ho, quick, let's like model every system out there and, and get in front of a whiteboard and do the biggest, baddest map that we can come up with. And all right, well, we know that we're operating in a tax and superannuation system, for example. I know that if I pull a lever over in self-managed super funds, that it is going to have impacts on the way that businesses experience the tax system upstream and downstream in different ways. So how am I designing for that? How am I asking questions that center those kind of perspectives rather than looking narrowly at a particular problem? And I wonder, Luke, thinking about this, this tax, this superannuation system, what is being designed? Like, what are we making? What are we crafting? What are we stitching together? Yeah, that's a really great question as well, Kellyanne. Um, and I think there's no one answer to that, right? So all Australian taxpayers have experience with the Australian tax system. It's one of the very few ubiquitous systems that all Australians experience. If you left your house today and bought a coffee, you've participated in the tax and superannuation system. The money that you've spent there, you, you know, you've um, received through some income subject to income tax. The money that you've paid out to that coffee shop is subject to goods and services tax. And so there are different products and services and experiences and channels that make up the tax and superannuation system. A lot of the work that we do at the ATO is building those different components or elements of the system but then also standing back to think about how they operate as an entirety. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that really excited me about going to work at the ATO was thinking explicitly about what it meant to design that system. Elements of designing for the parts and there's elements of designing for the whole or considering the whole. But I think when we 
begin to center that language of we are designing a system that opens up new possibilities in terms of what design means. Mm. And I'm curious, I guess there's a risk that's, that systems become a new buzzword for design, for designers, and that we start talking about many things as, as systems-led practices. And I wonder about some of the, the risks if industrial designers, if human-centered designers, if service designers sort of rush out to work at the systems level, um, what's at stake? Yeah, great question. I'll have a go at trying to answer that. Um, what's at stake? I think it's perhaps, yeah, the understanding where the right intervention is. So being able to kind of have that systems consciousness and really understand how to look at a system, which can take some time and practice and um, some, some of the right tools. Um, but I think, yeah, the risk perhaps is kind of that narrow lens or that really broad lens of the intervention or the type of solution we're trying to aim for. Because um, studying industrial design and human-centered design is very you know, human-focused on the needs and very, I guess, narrow in that sense. So um, yeah, perhaps the risk is being able to just learn and practice the language and the tools um, and being able to step back and see the whole system. Yeah. So I think for me, Kellyanne, one of the things that I think a lot about is how we use language in really intentional ways. And I think there is a danger that people get caught up in the use of new language to describe old concepts. So, you know, old wine, new bottles. For me, I think um, there are particular elements of systems thinking and complexity practice that really challenge some of the fundamentals of design. Uh, so they shift our focus, for example, from problems and solutions as the kind of the poles of the design process to thinking about whole systems and the work that we do in trying to influence or steward them to more towards more positive um, futures. I think there's also, you know, a shift in understanding the role of the designer in a system. So for me, systems don't have outcomes or solutions. They have behavior and we are part of that behavior and we're part of a constant iterative redesign process. Now, Many designers might say, well, that's the mindset that I've always brought to design. And, you know, I probably feel that way myself about my own design practice and the journey that I've been on. That's the way I've always done it. That's the way I've always thought about it. And I think this is not a binary distinction. It's a matter of degree. I think we're always reaching towards the, what does it mean to break out of the shackles of a industrialized design process? which has absolutely been built for things like product design and service design and private sector innovation, and say, what does it mean for me to stand back and understand the behavior of the system, recognize that I'm part of it, recognize that it's imbued with a whole bunch of social dynamics that are really oppressive, um, are laden with, with power that I am part of producing, and start to stitch them together in new ways using systems techniques and design techniques. So for me, that's a really fundamental shift. I'm more than happy to be challenged by others that say that it's not. But I think it is important to make some of these distinctions in our language and say, that thing over there looks like design. 
and it might look like a design process that's been marketed and communicated as a particular innovation in design practice. And then point to something else and say, this is an attempt to be more systems conscious about the way that we think and the way that we behave in the work that we do. Mm. Let's think practically. Let's say I'm about to embark on a project and there's some, some scope, some authority, some permission to explore, not only at the product layer, the service layer, but maybe the systems layer as well. And I'm thinking about the discovery work, for example, that I might undertake in that sort of first or early stage, what might be some of the choices that I'm going to make about the, the methods, the practices, the rituals that I'm engaging in if I'm trying to work in a more systems conscious way? So I might come at this a slightly different direction. So I think if you're solving a problem in a particular systemic context, it's important as part of, you know, these might seem like really pedestrian questions, but Sometimes I think we rush ahead in a design process and we don't set the foundations of what it means to understand the system in which we're operating. So like what problem are we looking to solve? So let's say the problem that we're looking to solve, I'll go back to my previous life as an academic where I did a lot of work on, on food systems and the systems that sustained kind of healthy, healthy communities. Um, so we say, all right, we, we want to improve the health of this community. So what system are we actually operating in? We're trying to shift a system of barriers that stop people living healthy lives or that stop them putting good food on the table. If those are our parameters, they give us the tools to say, well, what are the elements, relationships, stakeholders, connections in that system that we want to map? And I think that almost gives a designer a, a language or a scaffolding to understand that problem in a systemic way, but also in a really rigorous way. So I've written a little bit about this problem that people jump to saying, wow, this is a system, let me get out and start mapping without asking some of those really fundamental questions like what system, what question am I asking? What are the different parts? What are the nature of the connections that exist? Another way to come at a similar question a lot of people do stakeholder mapping as part of standard human-centered design work. Um, I think in systems practice, we're pushed to think about the nature of the different connections amongst stakeholders. So are they informational connections where people share information in particular directions? Are they connections that involve the transfer of money or the transfer of goods? Um, are they power dynamic uh, relationships? So is there a hierarchical relationship between different stakeholders? So I think even before you get to mapping, some of those fundamental questions about the nature of the system you find yourself in and what elements of it you want to emphasize are crucial. So some of my, some of my systems thinking and complexity colleagues would say, well, we're talking a lot about the system here, you know, big T, big S. Whereas system is a, is a tool for making sense of the world, right? There are no systems out there. We actually use systems as a lens to understand the complexity of the world around us. So we need to think about what that lens is and how we meaningfully apply it. We spoke a little bit earlier about, I guess, the dangers of living in the ephemeral and abstract. And that's not always 
desirable, accessible. It doesn't always feel helpful. One of the things in a design practice potentially done well is to use something, be it a product or a service, as a kind of portal into a different conversation, into a different set of conditions, uh, into different power structures or relationships. And I wonder if there's any examples that come to mind of where we're using objects or artifacts to create different conversations or relationships. And maybe Luke, you want to kick us off? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, um, so, you know, the technical language for an artifact that helps us have those deeper conversations about the system and those deeper conversations are always product of differing experiences or different perspectives that people bring toward us toward a shared challenge or a shared context is a boundary object. Uh, and I think there are, you know, a number of really good examples of boundary objects in design practice. So whether that's something like a cameo or a persona, even slightly different, Kellyanne, from something like a product or a service, but something that is tactile and tangible and helps people cut through the complexity of, wow, we're sitting in a system that none of us fully understand, but we need to have a conversation about it in a way that enables us to collectively like wrap our arms around it and enable some kind of action. So I think um, in my work, I like to think about the opportunities of either using systems maps, other artifacts that traditionally come through the design process as foundations for really generative conversations. And it's funny when I'm talking to people, uh, you know, at barbecues, not that I get to go to those right now, uh, is to say, well, what, what do I do actually day to day in the work as a systems led designer? And because that language is probably quite jargon heavy for people that are not part of this community, I actually say to people that I spend my time designing conversations. It's really, it's really what I do. People said, Luke, what do you, what do you design? What, what are you actually designing? Nine times out of 10, it's a conversation amongst a group of people that need to have a shared experience. And that's either a shared experience of, of a problem or it's a shared experience of a route to you know, a, a different set of behavior in that system. And so I think using boundary objects, whatever shape they take in a particular form, is really important. And are there any objects or artifacts, at least, that you're working on at the moment in your work that you're finding really helpful? Yeah, so one was um, creating some stakeholder maps. And I think that while they're not as complex in terms of drawing out the connections between all of the stakeholders, I think it alone just helps create the conversation and the visibility of who is in the space, all the key players within different aspects of a particular system. Um, and I think, yeah, like was like Luke was just saying, it's really that's really important for having conversations. Um, and like with design, it seems quite similar, doesn't it, with creating journey maps or if it's the blueprints or personas that they're all serving that purpose of having a visual artifact to help drive a conversation um, to a possible solution or to help shift the system in, in the right way or in, in a way. Um, yeah. And I wonder sometimes also if things like, you know, new ways of communicating or communications products 
can also be things that sort of radiate intent out into a system or an organization about communicating maybe a different set of values or a different set of preferences or a different set of connections and relationships. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can overlook those small kind of communications objects, but they sort of become a way, I think, of signaling perhaps different future for the organization. Um, Luke, I love your newsletter, uh, Pig on the Tracks. I don't know what that means exactly. Maybe you could tell us. Um, but I was really curious to see mention of systems ops as a, as a concept. So I think many folks who listen to this podcast would be aware of other ops, design ops, research ops, DevOps. What's systems ops and, and how is it useful? Uh, so I actually might start, Kellyanne, by talking a little bit about the language of pig on the tracks, because it, I often get asked the question, what the heck does that mean? That's a really quirky name for a newsletter or a blog. Um, and, and I was challenged when I kind of decided that I wanted to start a blog by what, what to call it. And I wanted something that embodied my thinking around how we change systems and some of the ways that we go about shifting systems that might seem immovable or immutable to different paradigms or different horizons. And one of the things that uh, a very famous uh, science fiction author, Ursula Le Guin, said in actually a nonfiction piece of work where she was talking about the challenges of climate change. And I'll read you a quote uh, when she was talking about the work that she was doing in that essay and, and what she was trying to communicate to those around her. And she said, my, my intent is not reactionary or even conservative, but simply subversive. It seems that the utopian imagination is trapped, like capitalism and industrialism, and the human population in a one-way future consisting only of growth. She goes on to say, all I'm trying to do is figure out how to put a pig on the tracks. And so I think for a lot of people in the world that we live in today, it feels like we are, we are stuck on, a, on one trajectory, on one pathway. Uh, and so much of the work that we do, even when we say it's subversive or we think of it as transformative and so much of the work that goes on in design and strategy today self-labels as, you know, transformational work, uh, even though it contributes to or reinforces a trajectory that's no change to the direction that we're already on. My constant challenge to myself and my systems practice is how the hell do I throw a pig on the tracks uh, and challenge myself and those around me to actually derail parts of the system that we do need to leave behind. So maybe then when we jump to, to system ops, and that is me trying to capitalize on a buzzword that exists in other parts of the world like design ops or research ops. But it was an attempt to ask myself the question, if we are going to invest in systemic design in large organizations, if places like the ATO or other large government agencies want to take systemic design seriously, how do we create the environments where that kind of thing is possible and where people are enabled to use a systemic mindset and use systems and design tools to solve problems? And I'm not convinced that's as easy as giving them a tool book and saying, go for your life. So when I was thinking about system ops and the different architectures that we need in place to enable that, 
there's what I think of as a relational architecture. So how are we meaningfully designing the teams that make up a design function or capability? Uh, How are we thinking about their relationships with other parts of the organization, other parts of the ecosystem in which they operate? Kind of a strategic architecture. So how are we thinking about reframing what strategy is and what strategy means? There's a lot of really great work in the systems thinking and complexity world about the challenges of linear strategy roadmaps and setting goals, you know, two years out that are probably audacious and ambitious at day one, but then when the context moves around us, they quickly become meaningless. So what does it mean to do strategy in a complex and dynamic world? How can we create an architecture in which those conversations are really important? And then the third architecture is what I call a learning architecture. So many colleagues working in this space are quite fascinated by what it means to build learning organizations or learning systems in the public sector and thinking about the engine of growth in complex systems as learning uh, and building that learning as part of our natural systems and natural processes. It's really easy to do that at the surface level. You say, here's an L&D budget make sure you spend it. Oh, you went to a design thinking conference. Well done. We're giving you the opportunity to learn. But I think we can challenge ourselves to be deeper and more ambitious than that in terms of what learning actually means. How are people learning together? Uh, How can we create teams where people have a designated learning buddy that challenges them day in, day out to say, well, what did you learn when you did that? Oh, that's great. You know, you, you, how can we think about that relationship as different from a manager reportee relationship or employee relationship? So I think those are the three architectures that make up kind of in my mind a systemic organization and system ops would be a function that's responsible for cultivating and stewarding those functions and systems so that they are front of mind for an organization and they don't get lost as some of those key enablers of what it means to do good systems work. Mm. And perhaps to be uh, controversial, is what you've just described a more contemporary version of an organisational development team? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. So, um, and there are, there are others in the community that talk about, you know, a role for something like an organisational ecologist, for example. So a lot of systems and complexity theory draws on uh, ecological thinking and evolutionary dynamics as one of its inputs to theorizing. And I think, you know, we've historically, we've thought about the organization as a machine and almost every organization that I've worked in, the discourse and the metaphors that are used to understand what the organization is and the role that different people play in it tends to be very machine driven. Any organization that wants to take systems and complexity seriously would need to shift to a more ecology-based understanding and kind of metaphorical basis. And so, yeah, I think, you know, another way to frame that is, well, what would an organizational ecologist be? How would an organizational ecologist replace that traditional organizational development function? Even that shift feels to me like a shift from something that sounds pretty dull and pretty mechanistic to something that's actually alive and that needs to be nurtured and stewarded. Mm. And as we're coming to a close, I guess I'm thinking about 
richer and bolder and bigger language for some of these things that we want to do. Acknowledging, as you've said, that much of our organizational language feels uh, machine driven, but also sort of warlike or kind of a bit violent at times. And I'm thinking of the, you know, wonderful poet David White and some of his work in trying to share bigger language for some of the transformations, the actual transformations that we might want to make together in community and organizations and in systems. And I wonder if I could ask you each to share a place in which you're finding some of that language that feels uh, enriching and exciting and, and bold. And Elise, I wonder if you might kick us off. Yeah, that's a great question. And for me, I think this really lends itself to circular economy and creating regenerative futures. Um, and Luke's example was really, really interesting and has challenged me as well to think about the whole world around us and how it has kind of informed different types of language. For example, like you've said, Luke, the organisation being like a machine. Um, but yeah, those richer sources of language for me comes from having conversations with, I guess, people outside of design, as with people on the front lines, um, in the circular economy, whether it's with waste and people seeing problems, but looking to more prosperous futures. Um, and I think what's interesting with that as well is we still talk about kind of growth, um, infinite growth, however, with a circular or regenerative future. Um, I guess growth can't go on forever. Um, yeah, so I think taking the likes of nature as inspiration, how things have their own cycles and, and journeys, I think is really important that we can carry forward into all sorts of language we use in day-to-day -day life, especially in systems thinking work. So I think I have two slightly different answers to that question. So the first is that I've never read anything good about systems or complexity in a systems or complexity textbook. Uh, so, you know, everyone I work with, I encourage to, you know, read widely and read with gusto and be excited by the different things that you come across in your world. I think great works of fiction teach us as much about design and complexity and systems as anything someone who's an expert in systems thinking has ever written. And I think we need to challenge ourselves that you know, I think this is true of design as well, um, these shouldn't be expert practices, right? They are lived practices, they are lived experiences, and a diversity and richness of experiences will build a stronger basis for the practices that we need to use as we try and design better systems and more generative systems. Um, the second thing I would say is um, I think, you know, a lot of Poetry is actually a great source of exciting, playful language that helps us think differently about the environments that we find ourselves in. You know, one of the greatest thinkers today, in my mind, working at the bleeding edge of systems and complexity is Nora Bateson, uh, who's the granddaughter and daughter of some phenomenal uh, systems thinkers and herself an incredible thinker at the edge of kind of perception and complexity. And Nora has a fascinating Twitter feed that I, I really enjoy engaging with, but it's a combination of poetry that she's written herself, um, kind of uh, poetic injections from other authors that she's put her own systems and complexity flavor on. 
And I think what's exciting about a poetic lens is that it's an attempt to recognize that the language that we have right now to explore our experience is insufficient. And we need to be, as I said, kind of playful and creative and explosive in how we bring the concepts that we have together to build a new lens for a world that we can't yet explain. Well, Luke and Elise, I just thank you so sincerely for joining us today. Uh, If folks want to follow your work, where should they look? I'm very active on LinkedIn, so feel free to connect through LinkedIn um, or my website. You can find out a bit more about me, which is www.lisamitali.com. And if you're particularly interested in circular economy, um, I convene a circular economy Slack community. So you can also find that link to join through the website too. And for those that are interested in learning more about me, probably the best place to go is is Twitter, where I'm a notorious tweeter and a notorious lurker. Uh, so Luke Craven on Twitter. Um, but also uh, for those interested in the newsletter that we've spoken a little bit about today, you can find it at pigonthetracks.substack.com. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. Thanks for listening to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com. You can sign up to the community newsletter, learn about upcoming online community gatherings, or join the Slack channel where you can connect with thousands of other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thank you for listening and see you next time.